you're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex here with you, and uh, I'd like to bring you a not-so-exclusive interview to the podcast here on Death of the Reader. Earlier this year in July, our friend Andrew Popel over from our sibling show Final Draft spoke with Matthew Spencer, a journalist turned author, about his debut novel Black River. And uh, Andrew was having a bit of trouble fitting it into his schedule over on the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast and offered if we'd like to give it its home since it is a great mystery book. I had some wonderful conversations with Matthew Spencer at the Sydney Crime Writers Festival this year, uh, including him offering me a missigned copy of the book to give to my father, which was quite a treat that I, I, I do shout out because my dad has had a great time reading through that book and has since passed it around to uh, several of his friends. So take my father's ringing endorsement, if not mine. I'm going to check you over to Andrew Popel and Matthew Spencer talking Black River. I will be back in the middle of this because I've taken some editorial liberties with this conversation that I will explain later on. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Take it away, Andrew. It's a pleasure to welcome you. I am Andrew Popel and I am joined today by Matthew Spencer. He's a journalist. He was a journalist for The Australian for 20 years. He's worked for newspapers around the world. But today, today he is joining me with his first novel. It is called Black River. It's really gripping and, and really, uh, I'm quite excited to talk this through. G'day, Matt. How are you? Hi, Andrew. Good. Thanks for having me. And I, um, uh, as I said, this is really gripping stuff. We're going we're gonna to dive deep and we're going to go to Sydney in the grip of an hysteria as a killer targets victims on the full moon. And then when a body turns up on the grounds of an elite private school, there are too many similarities to the previous crimes for the police to ignore the connection. Dubbed the Blue Moon Killer, the authorities know they have to get this right or the killer will soon strike again. I mean, if that wasn't enough, Matt, I'm, I'm also just going to say today it's a soggy, miserable day where I am. I think suspect where you are. Yeah. So set the scene for me. Take me to a scorching summer in Sydney and a city gripped in fear. That was great, by the way, Andrew. I'm always after an elevated pitch, and I think you've just nailed it very well. You can have that one. <laughs> so you're right. It's set between Christmas and New Year, so we're in summer. I have a little bit of that. I don't know if you remember the terrible red dust storm we had in Sydney Um a decade ago or whatever it was. Yeah, I do remember that. I remember coming home and there was it was like someone had painted the house red. Yeah, and I remember waking up. I'm a sort of asthmatic and things, waking up in the in the very early morning thinking, what? Because it actually got me in my sort of nostrils and things and then opening the window and thinking, holy Moses. So it's not as bad as that, but there is a little bit of a sense of that. There's a bit of dust blowing into town. It opens... Uh, I mean, the prologue's at North Parramatta and then we're in Surrey Hills in a newsroom and a journo's coming outside at 8 o'clock in the evening to just get a bit of air. He's on the late shift. It's hot. It's hot outside. There's a bit of dust blowing in. So that really is where we are, a sort of uh, a hot, dusty Sydney summer. I mean, even even more recently, we didn't get the the red hue, but... I remember the the Black Summer bushfires of only three years ago and you couldn't go anywhere but for, you know, breathing air that felt thick to walk through. And it seems like we just we just seem to, you know, bounce between these extremes. I'd really love I'd really love to know about that atmos a little bit. I mean, I can't recall a time when say when Sydney has experienced murders like you described, but I do I do remember, say, the backpacker killings and how that occupied our front pages. But was there any inspiration? How did you how did you go about bringing the atmosphere of 
you know, this imp- it's sort of this impending doom always in the back of people's minds. Yeah, probably from reading fiction more than reality. As you say, Sydney's probably, I mean, we had the granny killers, but that's back in the 80s. Perth has probably had it with the Claremont um, killings. Uh, and Melbourne have had some terrible serial killings, you know, over the past generation. Sydney, maybe not so much unless you look at Ivan Malat, but that was out of Sydney. And then, of course, you get uh, Peter Falconio, but that was more central Australia down to Adelaide. So I think I um, really I went to fiction and the D- in the DNA of Black River is certainly Red Dragon, the Thomas Harris book where there's two families killed a month apart on a full moon. Uh, but that the moon there really stays as the as the main sort of theme and symbol in that book, mm. whereas in mine the moon is there but the police aren't really buying it as a, as a motivation. They, they, you know, there's the idea there's, there's a killer on a lunar cycle, but they're not saying it's coincidence, but they don't see it as the driving force. And, and so, therefore, what becomes the major sort of motif of the book is the river mm. because the early killings are at Gladesville on um, waterfront houses looking over the river and they're on either side of a peninsula and there's no link with the families or the houses that they can see except they've been on the market in the last year. So they're wondering about real estate. Has someone come into both houses and looked around when they're on the market? So they're worrying about that, but then they realise really what's going on is someone's someone's surveilling from the river uh, and they figure out that if you sit on any type of craft, it could be a stand-up paddleboard, that's what he's doing. And they think it's a he because it's because of the sexual nature of the crimes. And he's looking into homes. And a lot of these homes are sort of glass um, fronted, often no curtains. Mm. And that's a, a real thing. And so that's mm. where the river comes in. And then there's this the book opens with a, a third killing on a school at Parramatta, North Parramatta, which for people in Sydney who know it is the King School. And that is a 350-acre campus with a lot of remnant Sydney bushland running through the back of it and one of the three creeks that is a tributary of the Parramatta River. So they don't have DNA and they're thinking geographically. They try and link things geographically and they're thinking, well, the only link we can see is there's no river here, but there is a creek. Mm. So that becomes a sort of theme of the book. I really hate to be glib here, but it is terribly depressing when even the serial killers are obsessed with Sydney waterfront real estate. I know. Tell me a little <laughs> bit more about the river and and I guess maybe your history uh, with it and your inspiration because, we, you know, we're a water-loving city. From the beaches to the rivers, we, we, we could spend our lives afloat, but you've really kind of turned that on its head in Black River. Yeah, well, it is a Sydney book, but in a way it isn't. It could be any metropolitan Australian capital if you think about it because they're all built on rivers mm. and they all have these old colonial-era elite boarding schools, big, old, you know, I mean, the King School was established in 1831 uh, and they all, all all the capitals have these places. And so I'm, I'm happy about that. It's not a book about Bondi and it's not a book about Glebe, Manly, any of that. It's a book about North Rocks and Carlingford and there haven't been too many Australian crime novels set in Carlingford, I don't we, think. We can Google that, but I'm going to say you're right. <laughs> At the same time, it is also uh, Gladesville, so it's coming a bit further to the east, but it, it's still in a west and west. 
and then you get to Surrey Hills and Balmain, but from there all the action is always heading west. So I grew up, my father was a teacher, my mother was a teacher, and my father taught at the King's School for his life. So I grew up there. I was born there. We lived in a sort of modest house attached to a boarding house, and he looked after 100 kid country, country kids who lived in a boarding house. And so I grew up in, in that house with my sister. Uh, and in the holidays when all the students went home, we had the run of the place with other children of staff families. And it was quite an idyllic sort of uh, childhood, which I've now, you know, besmirched by turning it into a terrible um, story. So that's uh, a little bit, but also my dad was a keen sort of boaty and um, he built his own sort of little 20-foot um, sailing boat and he kept it at Putney on the Parramatta River and a big day out was to get to the Gladesville Bridge, which isn't very far. So as a very young child, I was often doing that. And so I that sort of that stretch of the river, really there was a lot of old, there's a lot of old industry on those, you know, the Caltex refinery that's now Ballast Point Park is a little bit further up. But yeah, so I've got that stretch of the river ingrained in my in my memory. Mm. On the face of it, the the mystery of Black River explores the way the river connects us, and the police are very much sort of looking at whether the river, you know, can connects these killings, this newest killing, which doesn't quite seem to fit. But then, also within the school, you show us how historically the I guess some of these centres connect Greater New South Wales at the very least in the way that. Wealth it has expanded out um, from from colonial invasion. Wealth expanded out because it could use the land, but it always again sought to recenter itself in Sydney, where there was in both in both real life and in your fictional school, um, there needed to be that kind of hearkening back and that education that that perhaps couldn't be seen to be gotten anywhere else. Yeah. So Kings was a, I mean, in a way, it's an interesting place because it did, I think. I mean, I might be wrong, but I think it did start out as a sort of place where the squatocracy could send their boys to be educated. Just just quickly, sorry, Matthew, can you unpack that term squatocracy? Because I know it features in the book, but just for people who maybe haven't come across it in the in the day-to-day. Well, I suppose they're, it's, I think it's an Australian term and it's really, so you had your squatters who would be given a little bit of land and they they might even have been former convicts who were who were granted some land, and then so squatocracy is a play on that. It's mixing squat squatters and aristocracy. So these are your big landowners, and they would still be around, but maybe not so much because uh, obviously Australia wool was very important a hundred years ago. Uh, wool still plays a part, but Australia doesn't ride you know, on the sheep's back anymore. It rides on the coal and gas and iron ore back. But in the past, it was that was the sort of um, industry of money you were looking at. Yeah, and, and ironically, that term almost kind of captures the stolen nature of the land that I think those very people who would be called the squadocracy would probably suggest is a, is a version of history they don't they wouldn't particularly subscribe to. No, true. Um, they probably wouldn't call themselves that. Uh, and it is a bit of a glib term. Um, there's also the Bunyip aristocracy was another one. I haven't heard that one. That's- I think that makes the book as well. But the book was the book's been very heavily edited over four years, mm. which is probably if it's working, why it's working. Um, so I can't remember. 
remember actually if it, if it actually lasted that term. But that's another play on on the on the same idea. So yeah, Kings had a lot of. I suppose Melbourne would have the same that whole Malcolm Fraser Western Districts set, and they'd all be going into the big schools in Melbourne. Um, Melbourne Grammar or Geelong Grammar is probably a big one. I don't know them so well down there. And Brisbane would have the same with places like Churchy and those huge landowning um, families in Queensland. So that's that's what it's about. And the police, uh, when they get to the school, they haven't really seen anything like it. So they're just coming to terms with, with what they're looking at. Uh, and these are the thoughts that are, are going through their head in those early chapters, which is also a way of trying to place the reader in the school. Uh, and you get it through the journalist who knows the school because uh, he lived there but hasn't had anything to do with it for 30 years, but he, he's grown up there. And then you get it through these outsiders, the coppers, who were coming in and thinking, well, I went to a bush school but it was like this. And it very much establishes... I guess, a milieu, an atmosphere that both your protagonists are going to have to deal with because it's not the, they think they think the only evil they are facing is this this killer, but there is really a lot going on. And I, I, I want to get to the protagonist, but really we know it's only because of a gripping villain that the hero even gets to step on stage. What is it about serial killers that grips us? What made you want to write one? Uh, again, I would go back to my favourite books in the genre, which would be Thomas Harris, so Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon. I probably actually prefer Red Dragon, which is lesser known because there have been film versions, I think, two at least of it, but they didn't strike the chord that Silence of the Lambs did. Uh, I think it's. I think they're really sort of fine crime novels. They'll stand against anything and they've stood the test of time. They're sort of 1980s books, early 80s, and think about all the technological things that have happened since then with DNA, you know, to start with. And still, if you read it, it's still fresh and it doesn't feel dated, which is, I think, a great achievement. That's probably the starting point. And then I don't know if you recall the case of the Golden State Killer, who is a real person in um, California, and he was brought to just, well, not brought to justice, but arrested in 2016, having been on a an escalating spree from the 1970s, which stopped in the 80s and just he just went quiet. And they didn't have any DNA and they hadn't put everything together. So he started out as a what they'd call a he was uh, what they'd call a ransacker or a fetish, they call them in America a fetish burglar. So he'd break into your house and rifle through your stuff. He might take one earring from a pair or something like that. And they had they, he was known as the Vesalia ransacker, and they had a lot of those ransacking, maybe 50, 60. And then they started to see a series of rapes in slightly different areas of Northern California. And he was known as the East Area Rapist or the original Night Stalker because they already had a Night Stalker, so he was the original Night Stalker. So he was the EAR or the ONS. And then everything went quiet. And they, hadn't, they didn't realise that everything was the same person. So then it became a cold case. And now they had DNA, and they had DNA from the old rape kids. So over time they put it all together and realised the ransacker was the killer and they hadn't linked it all. And so they had his DNA, but they didn't have him. And they thought maybe he's dead 
they thought he's not in jail because I think felons in America get put on the DNA database. So what they did was they went to the equivalent of, say, Ancestry.com, put his DNA into that, and they came up with sort of second cousins or something. So that took eight months of work by academic DNA experts to do a family tree, and they came up and they had four people and they said, it's going to be this one of these guys. They, they looked at them and they followed this one fellow and they got a tissue or something outside his, his house and then he went to sort of the equivalent of Bunnings or something and left a cup or something. Or, uh, anyway, and uh, they got his DNA like that and bingo, 30 or 40 years later. It sounds like you put yourself through an incredible amount of research and I know from having read Black River that some of the threads you were just exploring in that real-life case are threads that we explore working backwards and forwards through crimes. Was was that your way in to the mind of a killer? Were you trying to were you trying to be in the, I guess, the antagonist's mind, or was it enough to simply sort of trace the crimes through the eyes of of the police? I think the latter. So you never are in the point of view of the killer in Black River, mm. but what you have is the police thinking about him and talking to each other about him. So conversations that delve into what I was just talking, mm. not quite, they don't know that case, but they have a forensic psychiatrist working with them on the task force and he know, he would know that case and actually refers to it. And he is schooled, obviously, in the psychology of someone who might do this sort of thing. So the reader gets it through a, a forensic doctor and then police who who are looking at it, rather than a lot of crime books do go into that mind of, of the killer. I was just reading a Michael Robotham and from 2015, and that's how he does it. He actually starts in the mind of the killer. And, of course, Red Dragon does that, uh, where you go in, you, you know, you, you go into... Um, into his mind and into his house, and he's he's a point of view character. Um, so no, I didn't do that. So I did use a bit of um, nonfiction reading and then talking to experts. Now there's this incredible dynamism, as you say. Our our point of views are two investigators. We have Adam Bowman. He's a reporter who who never quite made it big, but as you say, he has a connection to the case that his editor is going to leverage. And then we have. Uh, Detective Sergeant Rose Riley. She's the second in command of the task force that's trying to take down the Blue Moon Killer. I was really interested in this contrast of of the two. Why did you want to sort of look at uh, not just two people, but two different styles and approaches to uncovering the truth? Uh, again, it was it was probably an organic thing as the book was being written because it did take four years and maybe twelve or fifteen drafts. So things did sort of alter and change, and I. And I was lucky enough to work with a professional fiction editor from very early on, probably after a year and two drafts, I was working with her. So she had input. And I think the book started out more from the uh, reporting angle. So it was about the journalist and a lot of it was through the journalist's eyes because that's what I felt comfortable with because I knew him and his world because I'd been a journalist, a reporter for 20 years or a journalist. And then 
the editors in one of the one of the editorial um, sort of comments was maybe we need to flip it around and bring these police in more and actually have them as the driver. And so what you then get is the investigation is the main thrust mm. of the novel. And I think that was a good call because I think it, it, it just should be. It should be the police because the police know a lot more than the journo. The journo doesn't really know anything about the previous two two killings that have happened at Gladesville that have seen the establishment of the strike force. So it's just better for the reader if they get all that information and, and they have that. So they're really, the reader's really in the in the seat of the cops. Mm. And the cops are also looking at the journo because there's things the journo does or says that makes them think, should we be working with this guy or should we be questioning him? It's a very interesting thread. <laughs> yeah, that works as a, as a great thread. The, the other point I'd make probably is the, the journo's a bit more like me. I mean, he's not me, but I've, I've, um, there's, there's aspects of his character and things that, are, that and his upbringing that are similar to mine. And I've got a degree in English and things like that. So I could sort of flesh him out a bit and give him some interest. So he's he's quite a reader. We like them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and readers readers read books. So if there's a reader in in a book, then that that seemed to me to be quite a good thing. There's a great line actually you talk about the I think the police are interested in in finding how people fill the gaps in their life because they feel like the killer is filling the gap with obviously the killing. And I think Rose notes that um, for Adam, it's drinking and reading. That's what, from looking at his apartment, I wondered if that was just like a subtle nod and a wink to um, to your audience. <laughs> yeah, well, that actually came from a book, uh, well, not a book, but a fellow called Akil Sharma who wrote Family Life, an Indian expat who uh, went to live in America. And I saw him interviewed and he'd made a similar observation. He had an, a legitimate family tragedy in his life. Something terrible happened to his brother and his parents had moved from India and had to come to terms with it in a new land. And so drinking had sort of become a part of people in his family uh, and he was a reader. So that's where that came from. You have to steal everything, you know that. So, uh, But I think it's probably true. Um, I mean, reading does fill a void. I think, for, I mean, it's not the only thing it does. It's not the only reason people do it. But, you know, we read to be not alone and, and things like that. Um, and drinking obviously is more harmful, but on a quicker sort of time frame for a few hours can do the same thing. It's just then you've then got to come to terms with what you did last night the next morning. It's harder to read too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's harder, to, it's harder to read the next morning as well. Yeah, so he's, he's, he's in a way maybe got a, a bigger interior life, certainly than the, the cops at the moment in the book because the cops are dealing with the biggest case of their career mm. and they're hard charging. They don't stop and the book's very linear. It doesn't jump around in time and it unfolds over about 10 days and they're just going. They're hardly sleeping. And so you, it doesn't really, the pace with them doesn't really let up to then think, oh, what does Riley do, you know, in her spare time? Or what does she call her mother? None of that happens because she doesn't have any spare time mm. in this case. So in a way, she's a sort of straighter character with less sort of flesh on the bones about other things that might interest her. I wondered if at any time you felt like, 
you were, I don't, I don't know if hemmed in was the right word, but of course you've, you've mentioned there's a really interesting thread where the police have to look at everyone who is in some way connected. So Adam does come uh, under their scrutiny. But of course, as you say, he was a very fleshed out character for you. And light spoilers for lovers of the genre here, depending on how you wanted to play that, you might have had the narrator was the killer all along. Well, it's interesting you say that because the subconscious plays a large part, which I'm learning in fiction. Uh, So 30,000 words into Black River. Black River's 75,000 words. 30,000 words into the first draft of Black River. I didn't know who the killer was. The book, the finished book at sort of draft eight, so more work was done to it and things have changed. At draft eight, I hadn't tied up so I'd solved one killing, which was the girl, no spoilers, at the school. That had been resolved. The Gladesville killings remained unresolved at the end of draft eight. And then I gave it to a great friend of mine, an editor, a newspaper editor who reads a lot in the genre, and he said, you have to resolve everything. It's not fair to the reader to leave it open. And I'm like, no, 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 that's the sequel. I thought you were setting up a sequel. I wouldn't have cared. Like just one reader, I would have read a sequel. And interestingly, my fiction editor didn't wasn't saying that to me, but this fellow said it was probably the right thing. Anyway, the point is that I then had to think about that and am I going to resolve it? If I'm going to resolve it, how am I going to resolve it? Because I don't know who the killer is. Is it the same person who's done the girl? I, I didn't know. And then interestingly... I found the person was already there in the book, just lying in the book as a character. So there was, that was in a way, the sort of subconscious stuff was it can resolve things if you're just sort of wandering around thinking about it. Oh, Um, so sorry, the point I'm getting to is that I'd left it open to for lightning to strike, and again, no spoilers, to Black River. Whether that happens or not, again, I don't want to say because it'll give things away. But it was certainly in the back of my mind uh, that that could that could happen. In a way, I don't want to I don't, I don't want to go into it because it gives too much away. <laughs> Although we're in a, we're in a tough spot, Matt, because I think shy of asking you to give us a guided tour of the Parramatta River, we really can't go anywhere except spoiler territory. So I want to I want to take a tangent and bring us back to the mystery. I I heartily agree with the quote from Michael Robotham that Black River is sharply plotted and relentlessly paced. And Michael said it also kept him guessing. I love a mystery. We've talked a little bit about the way you go into the mystery. But what I really want to ask is, was it more thriller for you or did you want us to play armchair detective? Is Black River in that sort of traditional sense a fair play whodunit where we might solve it if we are sharp enough? I think you're right with the latter. I, I would, I would, you know, as a subgenre, I would describe it as a mystery and a police procedural mm. more than, say, a thriller. Because if you actually step back and look at it, there's not a lot of action going on. You know, there's not sort of um, car chases and there's not a lot of killing in the book. Things have happened and, and it's not very gratuitous. You're never there when these women are, are being killed. You hear about it uh, from the cops and that's just uh, an attempt to say this is serious and we need to solve it or it's going to happen again. So that adds that drive to the plot. We need we need to get it solved. But, yes, I think it's a mystery. 
People haven't said to me they've picked it. No one said that to me to pick it except one person who says he picked it. Um, and I believe him, he picked it quite early on. If you're very schooled in in serial killers, real serial killers, there's there's a little allusion to something in the early chapters that might might give it away. Dear listener, gauntlet thrown. <laughs> And that's what we want. I mean, Black River's only been in the world a couple of months now, so there are plenty of readers out there who are looking to outsmart you. Mm. Uh, they they, they want to be the next person to say, do you know what? I got it. Yeah. And you've given them a little bit more than they had at the beginning, mm. which, which is absolutely fantastic. I'm going to put a breather in here on this discussion and we'll be back in just a second with more about Black River. Stick with us. You're listening to Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you, bringing you a podcast episode crossover with Final Draft. Thanks to our friend Andrew Popel over on our sibling show. Andrew is talking Black River with its author, Matthew Spencer. I wanted to put a pause in this conversation because everything that you've heard up to this part so far has been largely about crime fiction and the mystery of it. And the rest of this conversation is going to be about journalism. Uh, Originally, this conversation about journalism was in the middle, but it was a big kind of logical gap that I thought would be nice to close and separate here. So I'll throw you back over to Andrew Popel, where he is putting a bookmark in the mystery. I want to put a bookmark in the whodunit aspect of Black River because there's another just completely fascinating part of this where we're looking at the contrasting approaches to investigation and uncovering the truth. And there is this real tension, particularly coming from Rose, where she, even even if Adam is not the killer, she is very uh, disdainful of why he is involved and why she's she feels it's for the clicks. I'm going to jump right to the end here, but this has got nothing to do with the resolution. At an important junction, Bowman is Adam is reflecting to himself that in truth, most journos spent their days sucking up to power, which I guess says a lot about what you explore. And I wanted you to tell, tell me a little bit about that and what you wanted to reflect on the role of the fourth estate in Black River. Yeah, so it's um, it's. It- uh, I'm a bit down on on journalism in the book, and and I'm not so much on the police. I think it's quite a pro police book because of what they do and how they do it. Yeah, journalists always like to talk about talking truth to power. You know, this is what we do. But actually, really, I mean, if you look at political journalism, the way they'll get sources and leaks is not by telling truth to people, but by sitting down and being convivial mm. with them. And, you know, there's always a line. They're probably not the greatest of friends. And it it often can be one side. So there might be journalists who are Labor aligned and get ALP leaks. Mm. And then there there are journalists who are closer to the coalition. So they get leaks from the coalition. I mean, there are a few journalists who who probably, I mean, good investigative reporters who who don't operate like that. But a lot of them do. And I think, yeah, just looking back, looking back into the industry, having left it, um, they do like to dish it out as a rule, journos. They're not very good at taking it. They, they, they don't like criticism coming back their way. So it's a sort of glass-jawed industry. And it's also an industry which gets a lot of things wrong on a daily basis that goes to print. So if, if, you, if there was a big story being written about you or something that you knew intimately, you know, if it was your company had gone bust or, or something and journos were onto it, 
the amount of errors you'd find in that story on a daily on a daily basis you would confound you. You'd be surprised. But doesn't matter. Let's just all turn up again and we'll do it the next day. Uh, so they, not many industries can get away with that. You know, if you were making mistakes in your job every day, you'd probably lose your job. You know, if you're on the manufacturing line assembling a car or something, mm. you wouldn't get away with it. But journos, journos do. So I see them almost the way you might view consultants uh, who come into an industry and try and fix it up. Journos, and this is what Bowman is to Riley, the police officer, he's got no real skin in the game. Mm. You know, if he does make an error in his reporting, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change anything. It annoys the police. And he's also there, he's there for himself. He's there for the story. What he wants is a story. So as you say, what he wants is clicks. Before we get to that, though, it's interesting the way you show us the powers that be, including the police, controlling the flow of information to almost they're they're not creating a story so much as they're 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 actually trying to create a reality. If they can control that flow of information, they're hoping they can influence outcomes in the case, which Whilst I guess I had an awareness of it, it was fascinating to the way you showed it to us in practice. Yeah, so that's called holdbacks. They, the police call them holdbacks. So they'll know they'll go into a crime scene, say the one in Gladesville, in, one of the ones in Gladesville in Black River, and see all sorts of awful things, and, and can with their forensic investigators and everything can know quite a lot about mm. what's happened. They don't know who's done it, but they'll learn things about the person who's done it. And there'll be all sorts of details that they won't release to the public. And they're the holdbacks. And then as the investigation goes on, if they're getting a bit bogged down or stuck, they'll release bits of information, but they'll always do it strategically. They'll do it for a purpose. And they'll use the media, obviously, to do it because they need to get it out to as wide an audience as possible. It can be as simple as like an identity kit. You know, we're looking for this. Has anyone seen anything that looks like it could be a photo or a drawing, mm. uh, and then it goes on. So that's certainly something that would happen all the time, it's certainly in a big uh, homicide investigation. They, they, would be doing, they would be doing that. Yeah. You mentioned clicks before too. Now, to SER, the station, we have our own revolving crop of young hopeful journos. So I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask for your reflections in Black River and your personal reflections on the demise of old media, which Adam very much reflects on from the very beginning in, a, in an almost bare newsroom, and that rise of digital. Mm. How, does, how does the quest for clicks influence Adam and the, you know, the way he's doing his job? So he's not re- he becomes clickbait. Uh, mm. He's interested in a, maybe not so much clicks. That's, that's a way of saying it. He's interested in breaking a really big story that's going to be a career sort of enhancing and, you know, he'll be remembered for if he can do it. That's that's what's driving him. So he's not too concerned. He's concerned about having it first, mm. but um, he'd probably be happy if they sort of held it, didn't put it up straight away and held it for the paper the next day, which is what the media used to do. Even in the digital age, say the Australian had a massive story, they wouldn't put it up now, this morning. They'd hold it and run it in the paper as a 
big splash the next day and then put it online. They wouldn't do they wouldn't do that anymore. And the Herald in Sydney sort of immediately stopped doing that. If they had a yarn, they tended just to put it up. I mean, that's incredible to think about. I'm just reflecting on my news consumption this morning. And I feel like we knew Joe, Joe Biden had COVID like two minutes after he first sneezed. Yeah. Whereas yeah. 20, 30 years ago, well, you might have got it from the radio or something, but if a newspaper reporter had that story, they'd hold it. Yep. Wouldn't appear till the next morning in America. And that's just how the news went. And then the television and radio would feed off the morning papers. Yep. All that's finished, mm. um, which I don't think is a bad thing, actually. I mean, it's terrible for newspapers, but newspapers seem to survive by having websites. So, you know, they'll put stuff up online straight away. And then by having analysis and opinion, people buy things like the New York Times or indeed the Australian for that reason because they want to read what experts think about what's happening. Uh, but it's certainly something that the media has had to come to grips with and have struggled to do it because they're giving it away or gave it away for free for, for so long, then to sort of try and put it behind a paywall and make people pay for something they've been giving away is difficult. So you have advertising, but all the advertising's gone to the online behemoths. Mm. So that's all been eaten up as well. And that's the crisis for the industry. What about our understanding of what is news? And I, I guess hand in hand with that is the rise of and I might use scare quotes here, independent journalism. There's a really interesting thread. It's it's quite small, but it does influence the way you're, you're at where Adam and Rose, the way they act, where I guess something is broken on an independent site that kind of makes news that's not news. Yeah. Fake news. Or news, yeah. or it's just kind of like it's 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 also just why do we care? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's just nasty personal sort of go- gossip, really. Yeah, well, that's the problem, I suppose. I mean, with things like Twitter and everything, there's no curating going on. There's no editing. Mm. You know, editors are, editors, I mean, even in fiction, my editor is there to represent the reader, to make the book better for the reader and challenge me on things about it. And it's the same in a newsroom. It will be exactly a, a, a young journalist might come in with this story and you as the editor will go, why do we care? Mm. That's not news and we're not running it. Sorry. Uh, social media and independent journalism doesn't, I mean, it's something that um, that goes on all the time and I don't think it'll change, but that's the problem. And Twitter often gets things gets things wrong and, um, and things because, you know, the, the, the tweeter wants to be the first with something and puts it out there and it's like, oh, sorry. Yeah, so there's not that extra level of uh, looking at stuff. And I feel like the the oft, and we're coming back to Black River, I promise, but I, I, I really am interested in the way you engage with journalism. I feel like the, the part of journalism that is never properly explored is actually the audience, the, the way the audience engages, because of course, a well-engaged audience would see through some of these more shallow attempts. But the circumstance that we're vaguely alluding to here in Black River, which it doesn't really give anything away to say that a scandalous photo or supposedly scandalous photo is published of of Adam now, uh, or Adam and Rose. And where do, where is the line shifting? Because if I think, I think if I did that, it's gossip. Where if Adam and Rose are doing it, it's possibly con- 
compromising an investigation. And when a politician does it, it's news because it's corruption. But it's all about where we understand the line being in the same behaviour, really. Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, scandalous. They're just sitting in a garden talking to each other. Mm. That's the scandal. And, it, yeah, it's not really a scandal. I suppose it's it's competitors in the media trying to undermine him and his his newspaper by saying, well, if you're wondering why he's getting all the stories... Here's the answer. He's just sitting it down with the cops and they're feeding him. So the cops are feeding him stuff. I suppose it comes to public figures and things. If you're looking at politicians doing doing things, they're, they're public figures. So then you have to, the question a good journalist or editor would ask is, is it in the national interest or, or not the national interest, the city's interest or the state's interest? So there was an interesting media watch I caught up with last night. I think it aired, you know, a few days ago where, Channel 9 went after the pedophile who's been in jail and Ah. served his time. Okay, yeah. You know, as a journo, you think we'll stuff him. He gets what he deserves. But the point was, one, Channel 9 helped put him in jail, so they did a good job there by exposing it, and then it was brought to trial. He was found guilty and he served his time. He doesn't seem to be looking to re-offend or anything. He's trying to sort of see out his days in England and they've gone over and um, chased him down for probably no apparent purpose. And the interesting thing was on the Media Watch, uh, the comments from the viewing public, from their audience, were 95%. What's the point of this? Just leave him alone. He's not. He's served his time. He's been, yeah, no one wants to defend him, but he's done what he did. He's been jailed. He served his time and he's now not doing anything wrong. Leave him alone. We don't want to look at it. Just leave it. It's it's not a story. And I think that's true. And you're really describing here, it's like the media is making itself a self-appointed arm of the carceral system in a way, yeah. which I guess is a whole nother, nother debate about how we view mm. punishment. Yeah. Um, and we're moving, we're moving, we've moved too far away from Black River. Damn it. Let's come back to your, your bloody good book. Uh, I am speaking with Matthew Spencer. We are discussing Black River and it is, I mean, look, it is gripping. It has commentary, but more importantly, it is a whodunit. And if you haven't solved it yet, well, these rainy days are a good chance to start. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time today. Andrew, thank you very much for having me. And thank you, Matthew Spencer, for joining Andrew Purple for this wonderful conversation. I've had a great time reading Black River in my own time, talking about it with my family. And uh, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, at BAD, at Sydney Crime Writers Festival this year, I spoke with Matthew Spencer, Roger Simpson, and we were reminiscing about a small family connection that we had. And Matthew Spencer begins signing a book and he hands it over to me. And I said, are you giving me a free book? And uh, he says, yeah, I'm giving you a free book. And I said, you can't give me a free book. And he says, well, I can if I made a typo in it. And uh, he's he's misspelled the name that he's signed in, in the front cover for someone else and uh, appended it, which has been a real treat that my father has walked into many pitch conversations with his friends about them reading the book. So it's been a real joy having this one uh, read by the rest of the family, which is not something that happens for every book here on the show. So I, I hope you uh, can enjoy that endorsement. Thank you to Matthew Spencer for that copy and uh, for Alan and Anwen for providing copies to myself and Andrew Pobel. This is Death of the Reader. If you want to find more about Great Conversations, which is Final Drafts podcast, we will, of course, have links up on the podcast page here on Death of the Reader to get over there. Subscribe to both shows because there are always great conversations, both on Great Conversations and Death of the Reader. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. That'll be it for today. See you around.